Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills that you're looking for, so you can hire the right person fast. Find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com. It's Tuesday, January 14th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me in studio, Jason Moser, back from his trip. How was your time away? It was very, very lovely. Just took a quick jaunt down to Georgia to go see uh, the folks. And anytime I do that, I get to play a little golf with my dad, which is always special. And uh, so, you know, when I just picked a great weekend to do it, it was like, you know, the weather was lovely and warm. And I mean, just not really what you would consider January even down there. But yeah, you know, back safely. And I, you know, I was flying Delta, so I wish I feel like maybe I, I had a little bit to do with those great results and the stock <laughs> pop for today. And uh, you know, really, maybe well, you know, I'm just trying to make myself feel better. Um, for taking I, a day off of work yesterday. I feel like I'm subbing in for you on industry focus because this is going to be a finance themed show uh, here on Market Foolery. We're going to get into Visa's latest deal. We're going to discuss Larry Fink's annual letter to shareholders. Um, and the phrase that pays uh, from the BlackRock CEO is a fundamental reshaping of finance. We'll get to that, but earnings season starts this week, and up first are the big banks, and up first for us is Wells Fargo because Charles Schraff, Schraff is that Scharf, right? Scharf, Scharf, yeah. uh has been the CEO of Wells Fargo for such a short amount of time. I haven't even learned how to pronounce his last name. Um, <laughs> Uh, just a couple of months, and fourth quarter profits were down 55% year over year. That sure sounds like a lock. I mean, uh, <laughs> shares of Wells Fargo only down about three or four percent. But what did you, you looked at the quarter more closely than I did? What did you think? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I always say we're living in an adjusted EBITDA world now, so you can you can chalk up any results you want and ultimately just adjust them and make a rationale and make your case for it. Um, I guess it's just a matter of how often you're making adjustments and why. Uh, but I, I think with Wells Fargo, I mean, the storyline I think really for most in the media is that this is Sharp's first quarter and he's going to get on the call and we're going to see how he's going to approach this business. I think that right now, when we talk about the banking sector at large, most banks right now are just sort of treading water dealing with this interest rate environment. Because, you know, as we talk about often with these low interest rates, it makes it just more difficult for banks to. to Really, you know, hit, hit that those profit growth numbers, um, but Wells Fargo has this added degree of difficulty in needing to right the culture of the company and clean up what's really been a very messy situation over the past uh, few years, and that is that is going to take some time. Um, it's also going to take some money. It is going to take some money. It will. And in speaking of money, which you know the banks are in the business of money, I mean the metrics aren't that. Bad, really. I mean, there's nothing that was really unexpected. Net interest margin was down 13 basis points from a quarter ago. Uh, modest growth in average deposits, and deposits was the number we've always been kind of paying attention to here over the last several years, just because of the the account, uh, the you know the fake account scandal and whatnot. So, so knowing that that you still got. Uh, depositors trust, and they're going to continue to to deposit their money in in the bank is is good. There's modest growth um, in in lending as well, and and that's actually in the face of something I was reading today, uh, with the average FICO score in the U.S. hitting a record high of 703 in 2019. So really, I mean that's that's very good for a, for a business like Wells Fargo and these other big banks because that's they're in the business of lending money, and so then it's just a matter of making good lending decisions. Uh, we we could debate what goes into those FICO. 
Pacheco scores all day long. But the fact of the matter is, you you have a a bigger pool of qualified borrowers now than you did before. I, I think the number that really stands out to me the efficiency ratio, uh, which. If we talk about the efficiency ratio for a bank, that's that's non-interest expense divided by total revenue, and so these banks you'll see them chalk up anywhere from fifty to fifty-five percent. Wells was seventy-eight point six percent for the quarter versus sixty-three point six percent a year ago. Either way, very bad. But a lot of that is tied to the operating losses, which is tied to a lot of the litigation expense that they keep on having to maintain. So there's plenty of work to do. But for for the first quarter, I think he I think he he made he made us believers. I think I mean I'm willing to give him a little slack here and see where he takes us. Yeah, he set aside another one and a half billion dollars for legal charges to go into the fake account scandal, um, cleaning that up. He did talk about uh, promising fundamental changes in terms of the culture, and I think one of the things that works in his favor is he's got another few months. Um, and this this is one of those things that um, the optics are bigger than the actual underlying impact, but I think the optics will matter a little bit here. He's going to have an, uh, another full quarter of results that he gets to report before Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting in early May, because you have to believe Buffett is going to be asked about Wells Fargo at the annual meeting. Yeah, I mean, he will be, and I'm sure he'll answer it like he normally does and just oh Wells is a well run bank and we just ran into some tough times or whatever but we believe in Charlie and, and think that he'll uh, do the right thing and maybe he will. I mean I, I do think that for Wells I mean the right now again I mean go back to that treading water versus this added degree of difficulty for Wells Fargo because they have to appease regulators um, and, and a lot of that boils down to bringing more people into your risk management division and figuring out ways to deal with a lot of this mess that was created with past Years, and then you hear a statement like he says, uh, where where he calls Wells's cost structure too high. He's got to figure out a way to make this bank run more efficiently because ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean that's that's the big advantage of these big banks is being able to take advantage of that scale and and, and run as efficient an operation as possible. They can't do that right now because they've got to clean up all this mess. I, I mean, I, Wells isn't going anywhere. I mean, it's it's still a very big part of our overall economy. I would not be surprised to see three years down the road uh, this this being a good time to actually have considered buying shares because I I mean I I hate to say too big to fail, but ultimately I mean let's just be real. Wells Fargo is too big to fail. Well, and we've seen some stocks recently where you look at the. 52-week high and low, and the difference between the two is north of $100. In the case of Wells Fargo, I think the difference between the 52-week high and low is something like 10 or $11. Yeah. So, it's close to the 52-week low, but look, if if Sharf does what he says he's going to do, then yeah, this this we may look back on this as like, oh yeah, that was the time to buy it. Yeah, to be continued. I mean, we'll see quarter in and quarter out. He just we just want to hold him to his to his words. On Monday afternoon, Visa announced it is buying Plaid for five point three billion dollars. Plaid uh, develops APIs for financial services businesses, uh, application programming interface. It, it basically helps developers share banking and financial information more easily. And I'm assuming everybody loves this deal because shares of Visa are up ever so slightly. In the two trading days we've had this week, 
this is obviously after they've announced they're cutting a check for $5.3 billion. <laughs> um, and by the way, good for the folks at Plaid, yeah. because the last round of private financing they did was about 15 months ago. And the valuation of Plaid was half of what they got bought at. Yeah, I would, I would, I don't think it's too strong a statement to say that Visa is overpaying for this. I mean, I, I'm quite certain that they are. But by the same token, I, I think they were prop. This was, could have gotten into a bidding war if they weren't careful. Because if you look at the interested parties here, I mean, you had in, you had investments from Mastercard and Visa, and I think American Express, along with a number of others, um, early on in Plaid's developments. So, I mean, this is this is a company that I think has had a lot of interest early on, and I mean, this is what makes companies like Visa. And Mastercard so attractive from the investors' point of view. I mean, they have this scale and these these network effects, and they're so big. They have the ability to make these little acquisitions, or in this case, it's a it's a bigger acquisition. But in the context of Visa, it's not that big of an acquisition. Um, it, it, then it just boils down to making good acquisitions. And, and and I think that with Plaid, I mean, we don't know. Um, as much about it as we would if it were public, but it it is a pretty cool looking company. I mean, if you look at some of the things that Plaid does, uh, I was looking through some of the case studies in in regard to the different markets that it serves. Um, and so, if you look at it, a scenario from the payments perspective, for example, and, and Venmo is a customer of Plaid's, but they, they they would cite the problem that receiving payments via direct bank transfer is less expensive than using credit cards, but getting users signed in and authenticated is is hard. Um, and, and so, Plaid essentially builds the backbone of this infrastructure to to be able to get those users signed in and authenticated. They make it easier to set up bank payments through a uh, user experience that focuses on uh, security and, and uh, relationships with financial institutions. I mean, if you look at it from the lending perspective, and, and it's uh, noteworthy that Ellie Mae is a customer of Plaid. And remember, we've talked a lot about Ellie Mae before they were acquired. But the problem in lending that you, you lenders have to gather this holistic picture of their applicants. But there's so much work that goes into that, and you have to ask these applicants for more and more work. And so, Plaid provides borrowers with you know a nice streamlined loan experience, trying to simplify everything and and use technology uh, to to gather all of this information and make sense of it. And and so I think uh, to me, I, I can see how this acquisition gives Visa another way to continue growing the business down the road. It probably isn't as clear. Today, because Plaid isn't one of those consumer-facing names that everybody knows about, but but chances are very good that if you're moving money between between entities from from your financial institution to uh, you know a personal finance app or some kind of bill pay or whatever, Plaid very well uh, could be could be doing that work for you. So because Pry, uh, Plaid was a private company when they got bought, we don't have great insight into their numbers. I am curious, though, if you think that what we saw in the last, call it five, six months of 2019 in terms of the IPO market, if that had any effect on Plaid's decision to sell. Because one comparison uh, I read this morning um, was comparing Plaid to Twilio. You know, an, another sort of you know behind-the-scenes software company uh, that provides the platform for a lot of businesses and all things being equal, 
if you're a long-term shareholder of Twilio, you're pretty darn happy. Yeah, and that's funny that you say that because Twilio was the first company that came to mind for me. I mean, they do they're they're different, of course, but they the nature of the business is very similar. And and so, yeah, I mean, I feel like the owners of Plaid they made a mint off this, and that's that's locked in, right? And I mean. We we focus on publicly traded companies, but we also have to acknowledge that it's very difficult to be a publicly traded company. And once you get out there in the scrutiny of the markets, you may think you have the best solution in the world, but but you know we're gonna we're gonna find some ways to scrutinize you. And and it's not to say that Plaid necessarily would would have been uh, would have fall would have fallen in, into that bucket, so to speak. But you know it's not necessarily the easiest business to understand. So there there's certainly room for. Um, inefficiencies and mispricings in trying to figure out exactly what the company does. Um, it, it, they've they've really done a lot to this to this point. I mean, they've connected they connected eleven thousand financial institutions at this point in in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. So I mean, they've they've built something really special. And my bet is, from the founders' perspective, they think you know what this is obviously a lot of money. This is probably beyond what we ever could have dreamed. And now they're going to have the opportunity to to see. This business, what they've built, continue uh, under the stewardship of of a company that obviously is going to play a very important role in our financial system for many many years to come. Quick shout out to LinkedIn. The new year is about growth and change. My new year's resolution: I'm actually going to exercise classes here at the Fool. Really? Yeah, yeah. Nice. It's uh, so far so good. Although yeah. I'm, I'm probably going to be in a lot of pain when I wake up tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, but if you're a business owner looking to grow your business, LinkedIn can help you find the right hires that can set you up for a strong 2020. Let's face it, people, it is a tight job market out there. And if you're hiring, you can't afford to waste time. And LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. I'm not looking for a job, but I did check out the platform. It looks great. It's easy to navigate. And it's no wonder companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. So, find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. Get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash fool. That's linkedin.com slash fool to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, I would add parenthetically, the largest money manager in the world. Uh, Larry wrote his annual shareholder letter, and in it, he says there's going to be a fundamental reshaping of finance. And I will just quote something he said uh, on CNBC this morning. I uh, caught part of an interview that he did with Andrew Ross Sorkin, where he said, I didn't write this letter as an environmentalist, I wrote it as a capitalist. And that's how we're talking about it. So, you know, just don't at us. Don't at us with, <laughs> with, the, with the, the. Just, we're coming at this as capitalists. There you go. Um, and so you actually read the letter. Um, tell me what you think, because uh, based on what I read this morning, based on what I saw in the interview, there are going to be more details to come for BlackRock shareholders. But it seems like right out of the gate, one of the things BlackRock is going to do is look at where they're investing their institutional money and when those board members uh, come up for a vote. One of the things BlackRock is going to start to do is ask companies, what is your plan, regardless of your business, what is your plan for sustainability? And if you're not coming forth with one, we're just going to blanket vote against all of you. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think, you know, investing is a lot about how you view the world. 
in uh, in the lines that you ultimately draw and where you want your investment dollars to go. And and I think that that uh, Larry astutely noted in in the letter that this is an issue that's very long term in nature, and so this is not something that is like. A recession or a currency crisis, right? Or inflation uh, concerns. I mean, those those this go away hi- after a while. This is not the housing crisis of 2008, right? 2009. I mean, this this is a situation. This is an issue that is very long term in nature. And when we say long term, we're talking about decades. And, and so, I think that you know, climate change is not going away, whether you believe in it or not. That, that, that's irrelevant. It's not going away. And what you have to recognize is that as time goes on, and as younger generations start to step into positions of power and leadership, this is going to be an issue that becomes front and center for a lot of people. It is only going to grow. And so, from that perspective, I mean, I think this was a really sharp letter because he talks about this reallocation of capital and and some of the questions that he pondered in this letter. And this will, I think, make a little bit more sense of it when you start thinking about things like will cities be able to afford their infrastructure needs as climate risk reshapes the market for for municipal bonds uh, another another really good one I thought what will happen to the 30-year mortgage and I mean the 30-year mortgage and he says a key building block of finance very correct what happens to that 30-year mortgage if lenders can't estimate the impact of climate risk over such a long timeline you're talking about the market for flood and fire insurance whatever that may be how does that reshape the lending market? What happens to inflation and interest rates if the cost of food climbs from drought and flooding? So, these are the types of questions that he's talking about. And no, that stuff doesn't happen overnight. These things are coming down the pike. You have to be aware of that. And so, that is what he means when he's talking about this reallocation of capital. And I think that he's looking at this from the perspective of, all right, we're shaping up our investing philosophy. This is what we stand for. This is what we believe is going on. And and whether you believe it or not, it's happening. And so you better be looking at it from the investor's perspective. And it's about transparency. It's about holding companies and leaders accountable. It's about conscious capitalism. We talk about that a lot here. We hear David Gardner talk about it often. It's something very important to us here at the Motley Fool. These are the types of things that that Larry is talking about. And I think that. Um, it, you know, one one point he made there over time, you're going to see companies and country countries that do not respond to to stakeholders and address the sustainability risks. They are going to start encountering more skepticism. Their costs of capital are going to go up, and that will have a direct impact on how they pan out as investments. And and so again, something that. This isn't something that's over the course of the next five years. This is over the course of the rest of our lifetime and, and, and well beyond. Um, and, and so it's nice to see that he's uh, getting these thoughts here early. And, and I think a lot of people will take note because he obviously holds a lot of sway. Well, and and certainly there are you know companies that we talk about uh, every week, every month that already have sustainability plans in place. Um, you know, you look at a company like Walmart, which has, for the past decade, been focused on their physical locations and how do we, you know, including programs around rainwater and how do we um, get more efficient around electricity. Um, but it, it, Larry Fink's letter reminded me of of two things. One was Matt Argusinger years ago talking about the economics of solar power yeah. and just sort of 
you know, showing me a graph one time where it's just like basically showing the dramatic drop in costs. I recall that. And then it's like, well, so what do you do when the cost of solar power, you know, because when we were growing up, it's like solar power, that's a crazy future thing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you become a homeowner. It's like, actually, when you run the numbers, um, depending on where you live and any number of other factors, the cost of solar power can be dramatically less than what you're currently dealing with in your home. The other thing it reminded me of was um, a guy interviewed for Motley Fool Money a couple of years ago, a guy named Tony Seba, who uh, is part of a think tank out in California called, I think it's called Rethink X. And he had written this report about, it was about a bunch of things, but the one that caught my attention was the, the ripple effect of autonomous vehicles and sort of thinking 20, 30 years in the future. What does it mean for things like cities that depend on parking tickets uh, for revenue? Um, what does it mean for businesses uh, that are in the business of parking garages? Yeah. If all of a sudden car ownership drops and cars as a service become something, and so instead of I own a car and 95% of the day it's not being used, it's just in a parking spot somewhere. Instead, we all subscribe to cars as a service, and cars are constantly being used. You don't really have a need for parking. Well, what happens to parking garages? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, I think you know the point Larry's making here is, hey, listen, this isn't something that's happening tomorrow. I mean, this is something that's going to be unfolding over the next forty plus years, and so we're trying to see around that corner. You don't want to start addressing this problem after the problem has already, you know, completely changed your life. You want to be prepared for. This as the world changes. I mean, like like anything, it's not something that happens overnight. I mean, we talk about self-driving cars, we talk about electric cars. The expectation for in a decade for self-driving cars to be the majority of the cars on the road is is silly, because think about all of the cars out there today that are not self-driving. Almost all of them. <laughs> and you're not going to just convince everybody to go buy a new car, right? I'm going to be driving my car hopefully for the next six, seven, eight years, right? It's a it's a gas guzzling car. You know what? I'd love if the next time I can I can go ahead and buy an electric car, and maybe maybe that'll be something that I can do. But my point is that it takes a lot of time for this stuff to unfold, and that's that's why I think it's so key that he's getting this 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 thinking out there now is because it's all about seeing around that corner and getting prepared. Think think about it well beyond just like you know cars. I mean, I, I thought his examples of cities and mortgages and inflation and food those are all so valid and relevant points and great questions to ponder. And those are the kinds of crises that are dictating this thinking. And I think more and more people are going to adopt adopt this mentality. It's it's just. Uh, it's 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 better for everyone. It's better for capitalism. It'll be interesting to watch BlackRock throughout 2020 if they start making announcements in terms of how they're voting with respect to <laughs> yeah. to boards of directors. Um, if they begin to divest from certain investments more immediately next week in Davos, we've got the World Economic Forum. I'm pretty sure this is going to be a topic of discussion. I would imagine it'll come up. <laughs> and again, I mean, it's we're not sitting here. Putting ourselves on this perch, saying this is what you need to think. I think at the end of the day, regardless, all of the listeners out there take take note of this as uh, you know a reminder that you need to figure out it as an as an investor what matters to you. Figure out your philosophy in life and investing. Draw the lines. What are the companies that you don't want to invest in? What are the things that you don't want to be a part of? This this isn't necessarily about telling you how to think. It's just giving you the ideas to help shape. 
your thinking. And I think that's ultimately the most important part as an investor, knowing yourself and then being able to shape your thinking accordingly and always be open-minded to uh, changing that a little bit as, as the world moves on, because nothing ever stays the same. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. It's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.